Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are hearing now that there are, well, we know the discussions are going on or have started between the province and the workers who represent uh, education workers in, this, in, the, in the province. And we're now hearing that a strike vote has been set for later this month into early October, which I think to almost everybody who is hearing this is saying, oh, no. This is not what we need, but you know what? This is this is this is part of the process. I want to bring in Laura Walton, who's president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. Laura, thank you for the time today. Thanks for having me. So, uh, as I say, we we see this stuff happening, and and I think most people are really not excited about the possibility of a work stoppage. Is this just what happens in these negotiations, or is this something else that you're seeing right now? Well, I think, you know, I've been an education worker for 20 years, and I think that I have had a strike vote every single time that we've Mm -hmm. gone into negotiations. And so it is a very common way uh, for workers to show their support, um, especially when, you know, the boss is handing you some pretty crappy deals. Well, and okay, so we're going to get into that in just a second. But as I said, right off the top, one of the things that really strikes me right now is especially after COVID and all the interruptions for school and everything else without picking sides on this one I don't feel I don't get the sense that anybody has an appetite for anybody in the education system to go on strike would you agree with that? Absolutely and you know nobody wants to strike but I think you really raised a very good point Uh, you know we're coming out of two years of a pandemic and QPOSPCU education workers were on site in our schools throughout that pandemic, ensuring that students were getting the, you know, supports that they needed to be successful in unprecedented times. Um, But also, you know, our trades, custodians, caretakers were on site, ensuring that buildings were kept up and that things were safe and secure. Our IT folks were instrumental in ensuring that online learning took place and people had, you know, the right equipment in their home. Um, So, you know, you're right, after the pandemic, no one really wants to strike. But after a pandemic, I'm not sure why this government can't see clear just how important the work we do and why they continue to shortchange us. There is one other thing you just said there uh, that's really important, I think. And that is, I think most people have caught this by now, but this is not the teachers that are talking. This is education workers. So these are, as you say, janitors and IT and other people. But if there was to be a work stoppage, we've got our fingers crossed and our toes crossed and all that other stuff. But if that were to happen, could the school still open if those people are not working or would this require that the system be shut down? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, three years ago when we were in negotiations uh, and they thought that we were going to be heading, we were at a strike deadline, schools started to shut down because what schools recognized is without the vital work that we provide, Schools can't be open. Um, Our custodians and caretakers ensure that there is a level of cleanliness and safety. For instance, they have to test the water before any adult can enter the building. uh, And that is by law. Um, So yeah, schools could close uh, if there was to be a work stoppage. And I really think that that speaks to just how important the work is. And again, I question if the work is that important, and we know it is, then why do we keep you know, cutting the funding to provide the services? Why are we shortchanging these folks uh, and, and forcing them to live on the brink of poverty? 
Well, let's talk about the funding. Uh, both sides gave their first offers the other day. Uh, the province talked about 2% increases making for those making under 40000 if I'm correct, and 1.25% for everyone else. Kind of what you expected to hear? You know, um, I always have some optimism that this will be the time that a government will recognize that public services are important and those folks need to be able to afford to live. And then they go and, and, and disappoint me again. I mean, it works out to being 35 cents to 55 cents. It's not even a tank of gas per month. Uh, and you and I both know what it's like to try and put food on the table, put gases, gas in our cars right now. Uh, and these are workers that have seen their wages either frozen or capped um, by the liberal and conservative governments. Uh, they're falling further, further behind. And now we need to really make some gains. Well, and those gains, and I think a lot of people's eyes sort of bulged a little bit. I don't know if I don't know if you heard that, but when when you came back with eleven point seven percent for a year, I think a lot of people said uh, that really that's eleven point seven percent is a pretty astronomical increase to be asking for. So we actually didn't come back with eleven point seven percent. We came back with three dollars and twenty five cents flat rate for every employee. Uh, so the percentage really depends on what they are currently making. Um, but it's a flat rate. It's a loony, a toony, and a quarter. And it recognizes, you know, inflation being at 8% right now. And when you go into the grocery store, the price of bread goes up at a flat rate. It isn't income dependent. Uh, and so, therefore, there needs to be some significant gains. These are folks who, you know, the majority of them are working multiple jobs. You know, a quarter of them are facing food and housing insecurities. Um, the fact remains is that the folks that we depend on to keep our schools running are some of the poorest people in the province. And I think there would be sympathy for that, uh, for sure. I also think, though, that, and the 11.7 was sort of the average, as I understand it, what it worked out to, um, whether it's $3.25 or 11.7, there's an awful lot of people in this province who have either lost their jobs or who certainly have not had raises or not raises like that. And and that's why I said, while there may be some sympathy, I also wonder if you run the risk of maybe antagonizing some of the public who are saying, where do you get off with a number like that when we're barely getting by? Absolutely. And we totally understand that. And really, we think that workers in general need to be making more money. However, I think one thing that is really important to look at is that we know from speaking to the school boards themselves that they have a recruitment and a retention issue across this province no one is taking these jobs. And the reason that no one is taking these jobs is because they're so underpaid, they're so precarious, and frankly, the working conditions are not optimum that we can't get people to take the jobs. Um, When we were at bargaining the other day, the school board associations told us that they went to speak to the colleges where folks go to be trained to do these jobs and enrollment has fallen over the last four years. They can't even get people to take the courses because no one is interested in doing this work. And that is a direct correlation to the fact that it is so underpaid. People are finally just saying, I'm done. I'm going to go elsewhere where I'll get more respect, where I'll get a fair wage and, you know, I'll be able to put a roof over my head. And again, I think there are some people who are going to be nodding vigorously when you say that and say, yes, I agree with that. And again, let me go the other hand, which is the government. I I think it was the government or people around the government have said, look, this is going to be a contract that is going to set the tone for all the other contracts that the government is going to have to deal with public employee workers. 
And if they add 22 billion, which I think was roughly the number that this would cost over a few years, if they were to add 22 billion, it's going to create massive problems for the government, for everybody else. Is it not for the, for the taxpayer, this is going to end up potentially being a huge hit. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough spot to be in for you, but it's a tough spot to be in for the taxpayer. Absolutely. And listen, like I pay, I pay taxes as well. Right. Um, But here's what we know. We know that there was money for a highway that's not needed. We know that there is a slush fund in the budget that hasn't been allocated for. We know that there's money to pay private health care providers instead of paying nurses properly. So the money is there. It's a choice on how we spend it. But I want to go back to this idea that, oh, well, if you give it to education workers, then you have to give it to everyone. This is one of the reasons why we went with the flat rate, because a percentage increase year over year will actually further the disparity between low income earners and high income earners. So when you say, oh, 2% for education workers, 2% for education workers is not the same as 2% for teachers. And that's something that this government fails to actually recognize is that there are different needs and different concerns for these groups. And it's really up to the government. They have the power to break that pattern bargaining, to say, no, we need to address each group of employees with what they need. Actually, when we used to bargain locally, that was a common theme that each group went in and dealt with their issues that they had unique to themselves. Instead, it's the government, both the conservative government and the liberal government who have applied this pattern bargaining concept. It hasn't worked in the last decade, and it's not going to work going forward. Um, Because what ends up happening is that the higher incomes continue to get further and further ahead, and the lower incomes, the ones that we depend on to open the school, to provide those supports to students, to ensure that our students are successful, they are falling further and further behind. And it's time right now that we say to the government, come to the table, talk to us directly about what we need, and then go and talk to the other folks with what they need. Laura Walton, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. Laura, thank you so much for the time. Today. You're really welcome. Take care, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're here tonight. So he's here tonight as well. His name is Don Robertson. He is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty and probably had something to do with Cactus Fest on the weekend. I don't know. He's involved in everything in Dundas and he's uh, got some time and he joins us now. Don, how are you? I'm good, Scott. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, it's true. It seems like it's been a long time. Last time I spoke to you, you were 32 years old. <laughs> yes, and that was, uh, you're, uh, you're short, about 34, but um, I mm. like the way you think. Yeah, no, it has been a while, but glad uh, glad you're here and uh, glad we can find a way to get back. This will be more of a regular thing. It's just been the summer uh, the summer hiatus. But um, speaking of summer, Don, have you, I, I should ask, you, you golf with some regularity. I won't say with any kind of, you know, I won't, I won't ask you about your scores or anything, but you golf with some regularity. Have you ever had a hole-in-one? Uh, no, and I do golf. I golf more now. Um play every Wednesday at Heron Point and try and get out another day, maybe Fridays, with a great group of guys. I have never even played with someone who had a hole-in-one. Have never you ever come close? Uh, yeah, if, you know, if 18 inches is close, yes. That's close, now, sure. Well, <laughs> it, hit, it hit a rake beside the green. 
but it was 18 <laughs> inches away from the hole. But it was, but I've never seen one, so they're they're rather unique. They are. Have you ever had a case where a shot you've hit or someone else with you in flight or as it was rolling where you thought it might go in, where there was that moment where your heart starts to skip a beat and you go, oh, it could, uh, okay, it didn't really. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I've seen a lot of those. And you think you're, uh, me last week went up and somebody said, you're two feet in the hole. Well, I was 12 and I proceeded <laughs> to three putt it, but it looked <laughs> like it was right beside the hole. Anyway, so the reason I my goal. The reason I ask you all this is because there was a 14-year-old girl in Alberta who was playing in a club tournament on the weekend. And 14 year olds, 14 years old. On the 12th hole, she got her first ever hole in one. Which anyone who's played golf for four times longer than she's been alive, which is a lot of people listening, are like, ugh, brat. But no, she was she's a good golfer. She got her first hole in one. On the 12th, on the 15th hole, same round, got her second hole in one. Now, someone can tell you the odds of getting a hole in one. I can't, but they're not They're not three to one. I have no idea what the odds of getting two in one round would be. Two in three holes. Yeah, two in back to, like, I think they must have been back-to-back par threes. Like, they must have been the, the consecutive par three holes, probably. But, yeah, it's the, the odds would be... I don't know. I don't know how you calculate those, but yeah, I'm sure somebody can with more time than me. But it'll be uh, it'll be a gazillion to one at least. The only time, and of course, this this nobody will believe this even when I say it, but I'll share it with you anyway. Um, the the one time I came about four inches from a hole in one, and the problem with it was there was not only was I golfing alone, there was nobody else on the entire course. I was, I was doing a, I was doing a piece when hurricane, the remnants of hurricane Irene were blowing through Hamilton. I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting to see if you could play around like that Padre in Caddyshack when the tornado and hurricane is blowing through. (laughs) So I called every golf course I could. And I finally found one that would let me play in a torrential rainstorm. And I was literally the only person on the course. I was soaked to the skin. My bag had about 15 pounds of water in it. And it was the best shot I've ever hit. And I came, as I say, four, five, six inches away from a hole in one. And I realized, you know, it was best that I didn't get that because I could never have told anybody with any kind of plausibility ever that I got one. It would have been worse to have got a hole in one under those circumstances than never to get one in your life. Um, I'd have believed you because why would you make that up? But you're right. It's a tough sell. That, that day, the other thing that day, which I didn't do, but it crossed my mind. I thought, you know, this is, there's, as I say, there was literally no one else on the golf course that day. No one for miles. And I thought, you know, and I don't know why I thought this. This could be the one time I play a golf hole completely naked. But I then I, as I was contemplating, first of all, why I would want to do that. Then I thought, you know, maybe there's video cameras, security cameras around the course which probably would, well, you know, make the rounds somewhere. So I didn't do it, but it, you know, it was a thought. Let me, let me tell you what I think. And you may not want to know what I think. But, <laughs> um, I, I would think that the guys in the pro shop, had they have caught a glimpse of you, would not have been surprised. <laughs> if you're the only well, guy in the planet that wanted to play in weather like that. And wouldn't it be just a natural 
natural transition to watch him play with no gear on. I mean, yep. really. I mean, if it's a torrential uh, uh, storm, you wouldn't expect a whole lot more from a guy like that than wanting to do a little bit nope. of it in the nude. That was unrelenting. And, and of course, because the grass was so wet at one point, I tried to jump over a little creek and slipped and fell into the creek. And the clubs in the back of my, my driver bunked me on the back of the head and nearly concussed me. So, yeah, it was a really brilliant idea. It's why people don't golf in the pouring rain. But uh, only did yeah. it once. Learned my lesson. Moved on from there. You're not you're not doing your credibility as a journalist much good here, but carry on. Take all the time you need. Well, I was much, much, much younger when this happened. I mean, it has to be at least three years ago. It was close to 20. Better. Yeah, it was close to 20 years ago, I would think, that uh, that we did this. And, you know, it made for a fun story and had lots of, uh, lots of people had said, you know, I've always wondered about doing that. And, you know, this was the... I, I I don't want to say I live vicariously for them or that they live vicariously through me. They just saw how ridiculous that was and why you don't really need that experience in your life ever. So you have a soft spot for George Plimpton, don't you? George Plimpton, you know, I I kind of wish that I had thought of that before he did. Of course, he was doing it way before I was ever doing anything in the media but for those who don't know what George Plimpton who he was he was a great writer um, and he did um, he wrote a number of books one was called Paper Tiger where he went to training camp and for a week or two played quarterback for the Detroit Lions and he played goal for the Boston Bruins at one point and uh, there were a couple others that he did I think he played on a basketball team an NBA team for a few days but um, yeah that that you know that that was a good gig that he had I remember a local journalist that asked me if he could come out and face slap shots from Rick Vive in goal one night. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That would and, be uh, you with the first pair of goal, goalie pl- pads uh, Pop Kaneski mate. <laughs> I still have them in the basement. You know, I haven't played in a while. But, um, yeah. But George <laughs> Plimpton, by the way, if, if people want to read the best thing George Plimpton ever wrote, and it was not the first person stuff, go and read the piece that he wrote for Sports Illustrated on April Fool's Day 30 years ago, probably. The Curious Case of Sid Finch, which was just absolutely brilliant. Anyway, we move along. Um, Don, you are um, you are involved in hockey. You've been in hockey a long, long time. You love the sport. You've worked to build teams. You've coached. You've played you've officiated i mean you have and i'm not being funny in any way i'm being absolutely serious you have a deep clearly you have a very deep passion and a deep affinity for the sport so i want to ask you about this because there is a um there was a poll that was done by leger not long ago and it asked people about their interest in the game and their viewership of the game and a whole bunch of them they were asking adults first of all they said 43% said that when they were teenagers, the sport that they most watched was hockey. 18 was baseball, 10% was basketball. Now, as adults, that 43% had dipped to 29%. And if you go down the list, there's more and more other age groups and other people that said, you know what, I'm watching less and less hockey. I'm less and less interested in this sport. And, you know, part of me wonders how much of this might just because it was asked in the summertime. Part of me wonders how much of this might have been affected by what's happening with Hockey Canada. Part of me wonders whether, you know, it, these this question being asked in Canada 
when we have not had a Stanley Cup champion now in 29 years, if the lack of winning has any impact on that. Do you have a theory on why the interest might be going down in our national sport? Well, I will tell you, uh, yes, I do. And part of it will be whether the other teams across Canadian teams in the NHL like it or not. For the most part, a friend of mine was the president of an NHL team. And when, when everybody came to his city, Edmonton, uh, Patrick LaForge, and he said the, the place was always full of Leaf jerseys. And it's pretty well accepted that the Leafs are Canada's team. So that in part, since the Leafs haven't probably won a Stanley Cup in your lifetime, although they may have, I haven't done the math. They haven't won. No, I was, I was born six months after the last Stanley Cup. Okay, so you remember it vividly. But, uh-huh. so I mean, that, that has a bearing on it. I think the other significant bearing is the diversity of the Canadian pop- population. I mean, if you're uh, over 50, 50 years old, probably you've seen the trends um, that what we would normally call traditional hockey fans, you know, that portion of the population has dramatically changed. The other thing is TSN, Sportsnet. I mean, when I was a kid, wasn't a kid, but I was excited when Dick Bettles brought Leaf Hockey on Wednesday nights. That was a big thrill. So, But now there's 24-7 sports on like 12 channels, and there's the golf network. So golf's become more popular. I enjoy watching golf as much as I do hockey. Um, so I think the transition of our population and the makeup of our country and the exposure of other sports, the Toronto Raptors, the demographic that enjoy the Toronto Raptors, so things have changed. I mean, hockey is kind of an old sport for a lot of traditionalists. And I think if you check of the percentage of people that watch hockey, it will be mostly the older age group. And I would bet you everybody under 30 is split pretty equally between hockey and soccer and basketball and the CFL fight hard to get their pound of flesh out of everything. Um, So NBA has become brilliant at marketing. The NFL is dominant at marketing. Um, So I think just the world has changed that much that that's probably a big factor in who all watches hockey. And you're right. if If it was in the spring and Toronto and Edmonton were playing in the finals and they did the poll, the results would be far different. When the Blue Jays in 2015, um, suddenly after a number of years in the wilderness became really good again, that was the Bautista home run year. Um, all of a sudden Roger center was jammed and it was with a very young crowd. It was a really, uh, it was the place to be for a while there that you, if you were, a, if you just wanted to go to a Jays game. And I do wonder if the Leafs ever did anything. Or, or, you know, we saw it with the Canadians. Two years ago, the Canadians went to the final and you saw younger people out there. I just, I, I do wonder how much that decades of failure has done to turn kids off, but how quickly they could be turned back on if the team ever succeeded. 
Well, I, I, I think we know the answer to that question because I'm not on TikTok, as you might appreciate, <clears throat> and uh, Instagram and everything else. Instagram is a wonderful term for any social media thing. The kids are all on Instagram, right? You see short stories. So they want immediate excitement, right? They want to be in the moment. And that changes. And if hot, if the Leafs in Edmonton, go back to that, made it or the Raptors made it, um, I think it would have a significant impact. But they want to see everything today. They're not interested in the Leafs or the Blue Jays rebuilding. They're saying, you know what, call me when they get there. Now, there'll be more Leaf jerseys in Toronto if they ever win a round or two than you could ever, ever comprehend. But until that happens, you know, today's society is very immediate. I mean, older people are on Twitter because they want the results. The, your, your core industry of the newspaper business, you guys have platforms on Instagram, I'm sure Instagram, but Facebook, Twitter, and everything else because everybody doesn't wait for the morning paper to get there to look for the results. I mean, I know the scores of the things I'm interested in before I drive to my mailbox and yep. pick up my yep. Hamilton Spectator every morning. So I think it would change immediately if the Leafs did something dominant. And I just, I, I think the world just wants immediate results. And well, and Don, what team? Present. Don, what team in Canada right now? I mean, there's seven teams in Canada. Which team in Canada right now is it really cool to be a fan of? Winnipeg is not very good. Ottawa's not been very good. Montreal was not very good. Vancouver is not very good. Edmonton, Calgary, they were pretty good, but disappointed again. And Toronto's been pretty good, but always disappoints. Who, who's the team? Like the Raptors, it's easy to jump on board when they're going through the playoffs, as you say, or the Blue Jays when they get good. Who's the, who's the Canadian hockey team right now that socially, if you're a 15-year-old, that it's really cool to be wearing a Maple Leaf or an Edmonton or a whatever sweater. I don't know which the team that would be right now. There isn't one. I think you named both teams, Scott, because because in in, in the moment, uh, um, Austin Matthews can bring you out of, out of your chair at any given time, and so, so can Connor McDavid. And everybody loves the superstars. So that may be an attraction. So I would say those two teams, because... You never know when they're and Mitch Marner. You never know when they're going to do something special, but nobody wants to watch mundane. I mean, Gretzky dominated, was magical, did things no one else on the planet could do then and even now. Maybe not at the speed they go now, but he did things nobody could do. But that's back in the eighties. I mean, it was forty years ago. Yeah, right? it's amazing and that it's that long now. Yeah, but yep. It, it was still instantaneous, and it captivated old and young alike. And those days are almost gone. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, uh, a lot of people in town watching what's going on with the CFL, watching what's going on with the Ticats. Not the season that anyone was anticipating. I don't think after making it to the Grey Cup last year, three and seven right now, and yet stunningly. And I think that's only the only word I can think of. Stunningly, they could still easily, without breaking a sweat, win the East. 
they are one game out of first place at three and seven. And they could run away with the East with a few good games here in a row. And I look at this and I think, you know, it's not cheering against the Ticats. It's cheering for the league and for the sport. There's something wrong when you can be three and seven and in position to win your division at this point of a season. Well, sure there is. Back to your point that you bring up on a regular basis as tremendous merit, the top team should make the playoffs. There should be no, there should be no prize for failure. And there might be, there might be a, a prize for failure this year. And doesn't it seem wrong if a team under 500 could win the Grey Cup, you know, get a lucky win and, uh, or two and win the Grey Cup? That You can't reward failure. I, well, we have talked about this before. Yeah, of course, but we've it. talked about this before. And it seems year after year, we have the same thing. And then, you know, nothing ever comes of it. But uh, like looking at the standings right now, all right, Winnipeg looks like they're in good shape. They're going to finish first in the West, probably. Because now that BC, now that uh, Rourke's uh, the quarterback for BC, now that he's hurt, who knows what they'll do. So Winnipeg going to get a bye in all likelihood. And whoever wins the East is going to get a bye, despite the fact that the team that wins the East might end up with a worse record than the team that finishes fourth in the West. How is it How is it in any way good for the league or fair that you could finish as the fifth best record in the league and you get a bye in the first round and then you get home field advantage through the playoffs? This is why I've been saying for a long time now, the CFL, in my mind, needs to go to one division. And the best six teams get into the playoffs, doesn't matter where you're from, in the order they finish, and the Top two teams, even if they're both from the West, they get the bye, they get the home field, they get the benefit of this. It doesn't make sense otherwise anymore. Well, I'll tell you why, at least why I think it is. Because all the owners slash governors get a vote. And none of the teams in the East are going to vote for a format like that because the teams in the West are, on an annual basis, far better than the teams in the East. They're far more relevant attendance-wise. Yep. But the teams in these all get a vote. And why would they vote themselves out of a playoff date or an opportunity to compete in the playoffs? Um, they understand the term integrity. If you can afford to own a CFL team, you're a smart guy. Some would argue. And um, why would you want to vote to eliminate your opportunity? No one's voting for that. And take a look at, take a look at the teams and take a look at their opportunities that would be lost. Any teams in the West aren't going, yeah, it makes sense to me. Take a look at the standings. Do you think? The teams do you think thinking, ah, that's not a good idea. Don, do you think in 2022 that let's say it was a Winnipeg-BC Grey Cup, do you think anybody in the league would say, oh, I can't watch that because it's two Western teams. Where's the East? Do you think there's a single person who would be bent out of shape by the fact that it was two Western teams in the Grey Cup if it was the two best teams in the league? None. If you're a football fan, you want to see the two best teams. Like in any sport, <clears throat> sometimes, uh, refer back to my roots, to hockey, some, sometimes the best playoff series are the first ones. Like, Often. And, and by a fluke, 
and I'm not arguing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, but they got to play Tampa Bay. I mean, they may have advanced, but that's not the way the playoffs are set up. And people want to see the two best teams. And I can make a pretty good argument that Tampa Bay and Colorado were two of the best teams in the NHL last year, and they found their way to the finals. But oftentimes that doesn't happen and because of the playoff structure. And I know you like the idea, as do I. You almost got me convinced that the best team in the NHL, the top-place team, should play the 16th-place team. And that's the way it should be. But that's not the way the owners are going to vote. Because it doesn't. And you know what? Now, in the NHL, for example, all the buildings for all those playoff teams are almost guaranteed to be sold out. Maybe not Phoenix. They might not be able to get 5,000 people in their building. But for the most part, but in the CFL, it's a whole different kettle of fish. Again, I, so I, I've said this before, and for regular listeners, I apologize for repeating it, but it happens so often now, year after year after year, we end up in this position. There is a saying in the CFL that somehow the CFL loves this saying. They cling to the people who are diehards cling to this where they say the CFL season doesn't begin until Labor Day. And that's a point of pride somehow. And I listen to that and I think that should be the last thing you want. Why do you want to advertise that the first half of your season means nothing? And in the East, it truly, Don, it truly means nothing. The Ottawa Red Blacks right now are one and eight. They are three games out of first place. They could go on a three-game winning streak. I don't think they will. They're not very good. But they could easily go on a three-game winning streak. Any team in this division could. And suddenly, the first half of the season meant absolutely nothing. How? Why is it good for the league that the season starts on Labor Day? It's not. And it's poor marketing that they talk like that. And they don't seem to be ashamed of it. But that like really it. says... They really, that really says to me, from a marketing standpoint, why bother going to the games in the summer? Exactly. exactly. Unless you have nothing to do in your life. I, I can't believe the stands aren't 25% full. Sometimes they are. But they're basically saying, you know, we're going to rev this thing up Labor Day weekend in Hamilton, and it's all going to start mattering. So all you people, unless you absolutely love the game, don't bother coming because it doesn't really matter till then. And if it's you the only it's only pro league that I'm aware of that operate that way. In the, if in the NFL, you had a all the games matter. If you had a one if you had a one division league right now, all right, Winnipeg and BC are battling for that buy and those two buys. Calgary's in the mix for sure. But the fact that Hamilton has gone three and seven, and again, this is not about bashing the Ticats. If it was the Argos in third, I couldn't care less. If it was Montreal in third, if you are sitting at three and seven, you're not looking at this saying, we can still have a really successful season by getting that first round by and that home field advantage. You are scratching and clawing for your life. Now, the Ticats are, in a sense, but it's in the East where, again, scratching and clawing means you scratch and claw and within one win you're back in first place as opposed to barely hanging on because you've had a crappy season. Let's call it the way it is. The Ticats at this point should be out of it. They should. 
and so should so should Ottawa and so should Montreal and frankly so should Toronto all of them should and so should Edmonton but they're not yeah no they're not and the, the way the structure is but I'm telling you and I always look at this stuff you look at the money and well, of course. they all get a vote and they're not voting for a restructuring because if they're out of it now what are they drawing they're drawing flies yeah and we got to go but i look but don if money. Look, look look at it slightly differently at least this is how i look at it is so year after year after year after year and we're not exaggerating now the East has a situation like this. The East is the the East has never crossed over to take the crossover. The West has done it a number of times. Year after year, we talk about how crappy the East is. I I absolutely believe that if you went to the one division and you made it so that you would be out on Labor Day if you had a year like this, I have to believe that somehow the Eastern teams would end up being better because they would have to be better. There's no choice. You have to, or else you're going to continue to lose money and lose money, and lose money. Somehow they would figure out a way. Remember when Winnipeg was in the East? Sky didn't fall. When Ottawa was gone, Winnipeg was in the East. Sky did not fall. That was their chance to make it um, a a one-division league. That was their chance. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML heard this week that Carey Price is uh, still having knee problems, probably out for the entire season. Honestly, people are saying now may never play in the NHL again. And if that's the case, did the Montreal Canadiens, did they, what's the word I'm looking for? Did they drop the ball on him by never putting together a team that was good enough to contend for a Stanley Cup? Or is that just the way sports is and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't? I think that's just the way it works out. I mean, they went to the Stanley Cup Finals, something no other Canadian team's done for a long time. I mean, they had their shot. Um, you, you can't fix an NHL team immediately because your best player is in his prime. Lots of teams have missed that window. So, yeah, I, I don't... I don't think they missed it. I, I think they had a shot at it, and a shot that a lot of hockey people thought maybe they didn't deserve. The only reason they had a shot was Carey Price. Yeah, somebody pointed out today, I saw that um, in the entire time that Carey Price played on the Canadians, the only one year did he have a player who had 80 points in a season. Kovalev, the one time he was there. The, the, the point being... The Canadians whiffed with the greatest goalie potentially they've ever had. And that's saying something because they've had Ken Dryden and they've had Patrick Waugh and they've had Jacques Plante and you go back. One of the greatest goalies they've ever had and they never surrounded him with the kind of star power that would allow him to take them to a Stanley Cup championship. And I wonder about that. I wonder if you're so careful not to mortgage the future that you ignore the fact that what you've got right now. Well, they, they fired the GMs, right? Even the last yep. year. They got rid of them. And, uh, I mean, there hasn't been a Sam Pollock in Montreal in a long time. So you have to recognize what you got and take advantage of it. Yeah, there's there's sometimes, I mean, like with, with the Leafs, um, they haven't done anything, 
but I don't think you can argue that they haven't attempted to win now in the prime of Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner's career. They haven't done it, but I don't think you can say, well, they're they're holding off to try and hold their cards for the future. They've given up first-round draft picks and this and that. And maybe Montreal did the same. I, I, I But I can't think of the same examples where Montreal just really, really went for it during Price's time there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have done that. I've been a GM a long time. When you get a crack at it, like I've won some significant championships and one was with Don Edwards uh, recently removed from the Buffalo Sabres and winning. Former Vezina Trophy winner. Vezina Trophy winner, Roly Melanson and Bramford with the smoke and Mike Mole. Like when you have the best goalie, you don't worry about, or you have the nucleus, you don't worry about five years down the road. You can fix that later. Kyle Dubas, in defense of him, he's not succumbed to some things that would have hampered his team five years down the road. He's been very respectful of the position and the future of the Leafs. I wouldn't have run the Toronto Maple Leafs that way. I'd have said, I don't care. I uh, Now I've forgotten the kid's name that won in Pittsburgh and went to Minnesota, uh, won a Stanley Cup for Pittsburgh twice. Um, I'd, have, I'd have brought him in. I don't care Kessel. if it would have cost me. What's that? Was it Kessel? Is that who you're talking about? No, no, the goalie. Uh, oh, the goalie, oh. That was a goal. Uh, was a goaler for Pittsburgh when they won, and he was in Vegas. Flurry. Yeah, Flurry. Okay. Uh, I, 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 if I'd have thought, and I didn't analyze it enough, if I'd have thought he was the answer, I'd have given up a first round draft pick and a good prospect to bring him in. If I thought that was the key, I would not have held back and said, "I'm really worried about how we're going to look in five years," because it's not a lifetime job. Uh, GMs get fired, coaches get fired. I'd have lived in the moment. I talked about it earlier about Instagram, stuff like that. I'd have lived in the moment, and he didn't. And he may be well-respected for that, but that's not what I would have done. You've got a small window to win and a unique opportunity, and they didn't take advantage of, of that in Montreal with Terry Price. And now what have they got? Yeah, now they've got a lot of questions and they have maybe a team that's getting better uh, with some of the draft picks they've made and stuff. But yeah, now you're franchise guy, you're, you're generational. And that's an overused term, but I think in this case with Carey Price, it's probably true. A generational goalie is um, maybe done. And uh, now the irony is now the front of your team might end up being better than it was. And you're now searching desperately for that guy who can be the goalie that Carey Price was, so it's um, it's he, a riddle. He won a, he won an Olympic medal for Canada. Yeah, he won a Calder Gold Cup medal. here in Hamilton. I mean, he's done. He's won everything that's, except there, World Junior. Yep, that's what you do. That's exactly what you do. You win in the moment. Don Robertson, love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. We'll uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Yeah, no, it was fun. Thanks. Good to meet you. Good again. to have. Yeah. yeah. Good to have hey, Don back. Hey, we will. Uh, yes, yes. I, I, I'm going to Jay's game Wednesday night, and I'm we'll going to share on, and I'm looking forward to seeing the ballpark. We so will. Uh, we will ball. be looking for you catching a line drive foul ball with your bare hand. We'll uh, we'll be very impressed when that happens. I'll do that. Thanks, Scott. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.